Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warrior. Thank you so much for lending me your ears and the only non-renewable resource you possess. That's your time. And my how time is slipping away. Look at it. We're already in the 11th month of the year. And our second episode of November. If you're keeping up with the episodes on Tuesday, we had a fantastic Tactical Tuesday from my friend Jessen Bradshaw, all about market-based rate authority. And if you're not at all clear what that means or how deregulated markets work, well, you're in a good spot because neither was I. And today's guest is going to help us clarify a whole lot more about how all of that works. I learned a few things in this conversation, and I expect that you will as well. If you're new here, I hope that you get a ton of value from this episode. And if you're an old timer here, one of our solar warriors that have been tuning in forever, but you like me are wondering how in the world do regulated markets and deregulated markets work and how do, how do you decide which ones to participate in or how solar uh, benefits consumers in those markets, how energy is bought and sold. We don't go into all of that, but you'll want to definitely tune in in a couple of weeks when Jessen comes back for his long form interview. Today, Nathan Giovanelli, Director of BizDev at IGS Solar, graces the Suncast stage. Thanks to Benoit for connecting us to Nathan, who has appeared multiple times over on the Solar Maverick podcast. If you haven't listened to that show, I'd encourage you to just click on the link here in the description. You can port magically over to one of the episodes. I think it's episode 100 that uh, Nathan did with Benoit. Benoit, congrats on a great show and uh, for sharing guests with me here on Suncast. (laughs) Well, today, Nathan and I get into lots of aspects of how his career has flowered in the solar industry from launching IGS Solar to partnering with names you'd recognize like Sun Edison to building solar into the largest choice market company in the United States. That is IGS Energy. I had no idea that this company was as big as it is. And I also had no idea that Nathan Giovanelli's heart and capacity for understanding this market was as big as it is. I learned a lot from Nathan and I am motivated by his enthusiasm and intelligence. I'm glad that he shared it here on the Suncast stage. If you love this episode, then you are in for a treat because you're going to love the more than 400 other episodes and startup advice that you can get in the rest of the Suncast catalog. Six years of backlog that you can dig through a veritable treasure trove that you can dig through on another long drive or run or dishwashing session however it is that you're consuming this content today we come at you twice weekly with content just like this and you can hear it all over at mysuncast.com or just click subscribe or like or whatever the button is in the podcast player that you are using most of you i bet are using either apple or spotify so i would encourage you to go ahead and rate and review 
the show while you are at it. And if you haven't and you can't figure out how to do that, just go to ratethispodcast.com forward slash suncast. It's super, super easy to do it right there in whatever podcast player you like. Ratethispodcast.com forward slash suncast. For now, get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. All right, Solar Warriors, today we're going to take a look at what it looks like for an entrepreneur to launch a business within a large power industry player uh, to look at different choice or deregulated markets and how different products can help scale the industry. We're going to look at it through the eyes of the director of business development from a company called IGS Solar, a division of IGS that I'm sure one of you is a customer of Mr. Nathan Giovanelli. We'll call him Nate today, as his friends do. Works for IGS, which is a third-party gas and electric provider in most of the country's deregulated markets here in the United States. He was a part of a small team, which we'll talk about today, that launched IGS Solar to offer services to residential and commercial industrial customers through the IGS channel and to broaden their reach and customer product offering. Before I go too far down that rabbit hole, first, let me say, welcome to the show, Nate. Good to see you. Good to see you. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, it's a pleasure for me as well. I want to ha- give a, a thank you and a hat tip to our mutual friend, Benoit from the Solar Mavericks podcast, where I think you've been on four times now. Yeah, I think that's right. Fantastic. There may be things that if you're a listener of the Solar Mavericks that we'll repeat here for the, the Suncast audience that maybe hasn't listened to the, the, to the Solar Mavericks, but I've really enjoyed and I'm grateful for Benoit's introduction um, for me to you and uh, to the IGS business, which I was not particularly familiar with. Uh, I've enjoyed getting to know you and, and I'm really looking forward to sharing your story with the Suncast tribe. We'll get into a bit kind of the who IGS is in, in a minute. Before we do that, is there a moment in time where if you kind of look back over the last maybe 15, 20 years or maybe longer, where it became clear to you that uh, not just energy, but the clean energy sector was going to be a a significant portion of your career? Can you take me to that moment in time? Sure. Yeah, no, that's a great question. And it's something that you had uh, asked in the pre-interview that really got me thinking about it for a while. And I was trying to go the whole way back as to where this really came from. And it, it started, I went to the University of Delaware. And when I was about to go off to college, I actually was contemplating going for environmental engineering. Now, this is, I guess, uh, back in 2000. So it's over 20 years ago. At that point, I, I wouldn't say it was a exceptionally popular major. And my brother, my older brother, who I really admire and has, has been a great role model, um, to me growing up, he actually went to the University of Delaware as well for chemical engineering. And and he was saying, hey, you know, I, I think you should consider chemical engineering. I think it would open a lot more doors and, and you still take a lot of the same courses and be able to apply that knowledge to environmental if, if that's what you chose to do. So it's funny because a lot of my classes were in more of the, the oil and, and pharma business, but I did take a green energy class uh, my junior year is one of the few electives that we got we had to take as chemical engineers. We could take these what they called uh, high level technical electives, and it was it was sort of a new class. And um, I guess to further date myself, it was 
uh, my the paper I wrote was actually on solar energy, but it was on solar thermal. So, and and if it if it made sense to put you know solar thermal energy on your rooftop as a residential customer, and it's something that you know I hadn't really put much thought into until you asked me that question, and I, I'd say that's where it really started. And and I will say that I think my brother was right that going for chemical engineering certainly at at a school as prestigious as Delaware, uh, which is really their specialty, opened a lot of doors for me. And when I came out, I started working for a company called SEIC, which was the largest employee-owned engineering firm at the time. They did a lot of other things as well. I think it's now Lidos. But I I, I was an environmental engineer and I, I did work for everything from NASA to Harley Davidson to Mott's applesauce to Utz potato chips. So it, it really gave me a flavor for different aspects of, you know, environmental compliance and things in general. And ultimately I never realized it would set me on this trajectory to where I am today, but it's it's been a really fun journey and one I have no regrets about. I love that you were able to, through SIC, uh, SAIC, as you mentioned now, Latos that many in our industry are familiar with from a solar perspective, you were able to work as far afield as, uh, as Mott's applesauce. Uh, what, did you, what did you learn about industrial processes through Mott's applesauce? I learned that there's a lot of different regulations. Um, like I said, they they all had different permits they have had to have depending on anything from air quality. Um, we had some, you know, Pfizer was was a client. They had they had things with uh, re- really stormwater drainage and keeping it on site. I'd say that was the common theme actually of a lot of these. Uh, that would apply to Mott's, Uts. You know, they they make they boil all these potatoes. There's just potato. They have the whole their own wastewater treatment facility, things that a lot of people don't think about when they're eating a potato chip. And they were one of my favorite clients because I, I love their chips. But <laughs> uh, I'd say a lot of it revolved around uh, usually stormwater management, which is yeah. like solar become more more and more popular and, and making sure that we have clean waterways. And that, that actually led me to my next job, which was with an infrastructure company that was based in just outside of Columbus, Ohio. Uh, mm-hmm. which I, I managed a team of engineers uh, building stormwater infrastructure for, for about eight years. One of the common themes is your ability to work, which I'm sure has helped you through the pandemic, uh, from Pennsylvania for companies in Ohio. So I, as, you, as you mentioned, IGS is also located in Ohio. And that's sort of how I, I got, it is how I got the opportunity to make the switch from ADS, Advanced Drainage Systems, which was in Hilliard, to IGS, which was right, you know, right next door in Dublin, um, and just through a lot of mutual connections, I was afforded that opportunity, and it's been an amazing journey. Like I said, one I have no no regrets about, and it's it's a lot of travel. It can be uh, now, obviously, it's muted a lot, but and and as you know, I wanted to really do this in person, and we got we got hung up with flights. I really like that personal connection. Uh, when you're talking to somebody across the table and mm-hmm. I think Zoom does a you know relatively good job, but it's just not the same as as being there and, and feeling that energy of the other person and trying to read their body language. So that that's something I've missed in the pandemic. Um, but you know, business continues on and, and I think we're all adapting. Hey Nate, I'd like to ask you a quick question about your family before we proceed here. You mentioned your brother was a big influence for you to go to University of Delaware and even to get into chemical engineering. 
What about your parents? What were the influences from your parents or your grandparents from a work perspective growing up? So I came from a modest upbringing. I grew up in uh, originally in a, a trailer park in Middle Middletown, Pennsylvania, just outside of Harrisburg. And my parents saved enough money to move in the suburbs of, of Harrisburg. Neither of them had a, a college degree, but both of them are in different ways, 100% my heroes. They really worked hard to make a better life for themselves and, and for their children. And I think taught me a lot of what I didn't want to do more than what I did want to do. Yet, Every step of the way, they were always encouraging me, whether it was as a kid, I was a particularly good artist. They, they were really encouraging of that, which you often wouldn't expect. But they they always encouraged us to follow whatever, whatever our passion was. And, you know, my dad worked a lot in warehouses and did that kind of thing. He started at IBM and, and got laid off. And then my mom worked at, for a company that's it's, it was AMP, now it's Tyco. Similar, a lot of outsourcing, a lot of layoffs. So I think that's really shaped me to want to, as much as possible, control my own destiny, just seeing those good jobs evaporate and also want to create jobs. Uh, I, I like the aspect of trying to get in and, and offer something that's innovative, but also gives other people ability to make a good living. So I think that that's been a lot of influence on me and certainly uh, working at the warehouse at summer break, coming home from college, just gave me all that more motivation when I went back to to work extremely hard. You know, even with the the grueling schedule at Delaware, I always had multiple jobs. I had some some great research opportunities there as well through some very awesome professors that I'm internally grateful for. Given that you'd, you'd thought about sustainability and environmental engineering, your brother kind of pushed you in the chemical engineering pathway. Is there a career path maybe growing up that you did not end up going down, but always thought you would? Yeah, this is a um, very interesting question. And my immediate response is the military. Actually, I, I knew that college was, you know, it still is. I have my uh, stepsons in, in college also at the university of Delaware. It can be a great tax on you know, on average everyday folks, and it's really hard to afford. And I was very far and seriously considering going down the path of going into the Marines to to help pay for college. Yeah. As I think back, I, I honestly can't remember the exact determining factor of why I never fully committed. There were a, a few things I know that like I, I wasn't going to get to graduate. I was going to have to leave early. Um, there were some other things like I, I really wanted to try to to go to Delaware, you know, so you would you would enlist and do your basic training and then go. But how Delaware works on trimesters or some scheduling issues. So I think it was a, a combination of things. And I try and live my life without any regrets because I'm so thankful and grateful for where I am today. But that is one thing that I, I've I always wish I would have contributed to. Some folks go because they're interested in the service aspect, feeling like they've contributed others, uh, a, a subsidized trip to, uh, to higher education. Uh, and still others know that perhaps they're self-aware enough to know that they lack discipline and they see the armed services as a way to be paid to sort of gain that discipline and maybe even like regimen and muscle mass and like respect uh, do, did any of those resonate beyond the service aspect? I mean, obviously, like I mentioned, the the 
subsidized or free college was a big part. But obviously the fact that I made it through and, and paid off all my debt and, and with the help of my parents, looking back, I still have that idea tells me it was it's much more service-based. I think actually that, you know, through discipline comes freedom and that I, as a person, am so self-disciplined that it's an environment that I would thrive in. I love the competition aspect of it. And all, just all the things that I think the military can provide, it seemed like a very viable path. In fact, I considered it again once I graduated. And, and when I graduated in 2004, the job market was a little tight for um, chemical engineering. And in general, I mean, I'm sure other majors as well, but specifically, I know that there weren't as many companies hiring as typically did at Delaware, at least that was my perception. And it, it, I had entertained it again, along with going back to get a master's degree or something like that. And Ultimately, I, I just I found my path. You know, I started working in consulting, and found out that uh, I was much more, much better at the the personal aspect of connecting people that needed a service with people that could do that service exceptionally well than actually doing the engineering work. And I just enjoyed it more. I love the the people connection and the business development side and. Through my career, I slowly gravitated that way until I am where I am today. Yeah, that's a point that I wanted to tease out a bit more because when we first met, you said to me, business development shows me I didn't choose it. And on the surface, I can look at your engineering degree and kind of what you're doing today. And I can track that like you migrated from this technical skill to interpersonal skill. But what did you mean by business development found you? and what has, how did you get, I'm curious, how did you first get introduced as an engineering practitioner at SAIC and perhaps even before that to the idea that there were other skill sets you could lend to the overarching like corporate process? Yeah. So at SAIC as a relatively young engineer in training, there wasn't a lot of people in my office that, that had my same discipline. And I started going out with, on these these customer calls and getting these projects with some of these high profile customers. And uh, I think it first hit me, honestly, I can remember it <laughs> uh, pretty well is when they came out with budgets. So when you're a true engineer, you have billable time. So especially if you're consulting, right? Every 15 minute interval, generally, you have to assign to a job or a customer because you're going to go bill them for that work. And a lot of the engineers, you know, were mandatory to be 95, 100% billable time. And when, when they came to me, they're like, you're only 75% billable. I was like, wait a second, what? Well, cause we need you to go find new customers. And I think that's when it, when it started to click that I could serve in some capacity is just, I think of a, a knack or ability. I hear this a lot at least. So it's more, I think comes from, from other people of just breaking down very complex topics into things that people can get their arms around and, that is directly from my time at Delaware, for sure. I mean, there there were there were people from all over the country in our major that were intellectually far superior to me, and I think that I just had the grit and determination to get it done. And a lot of time, it it spent trying to get as much help as I could from the people that understood it until I could grasp the concepts and and make sure that I, I got through with keeping my scholarship. I love that you actually brought it to this point of breaking down complex topics because, in fact, that's one of the reasons why I know Benoit has had you repeatedly on his show. And when I asked Benoit, what do you think is Nate's 
superpower? Like, what does he do better than most? He said Nate's able to take complicated concepts and simplify them so that people can understand them. I wanted to see if if you're aware of where that comes from. You said that that's something you got from the University of Delaware. So I want to play, like, tease on these two ideas. You said there weren't many people in the office that had your level of discipline. So explain to me what you meant by the level of discipline and how that parlayed into or, or maybe paired with your ability to take complex topics or concepts and, and simplify them. Yeah, I think they're sort of related, although not mutually inclusive. First and foremost, as you mentioned, I've been in Pennsylvania most of my life. I lived a little bit in, in Maryland for a very brief stint and a brief stint in Delaware. But managing a field engineering team at a fairly young age for what is now a large publicly traded company, they expect you. And if you don't have discipline, you're not going to last in that position very long, right? If, if, if you're not doing your job, if you're not out there trying to succeed, it'll be ferreted out pretty quickly. I'm not a big, when it comes to business development or true sales, like I'm not a big report and metric guy. I believe there's reasons and results and results don't lie and the best people get results. And it's pretty much that simple. And, and I don't like bogging people down or putting them in this box, which is I think a trend. And I'm sure there's a line there, right? I'm over-exaggerating a little bit, so I don't want to come off oddly, but it's, that's just what I think. And, and uh, being very disciplined, you know, I was up before everyone else and stayed out working longer than everyone else. And that was never an issue for me. And as a, you know, as a result, I got a lot of results. As, as far as breaking down complex topics, it, I think it, it started to get developed. And I, I preach this to my kids all the time. You know, we would, we had some, obviously, just like a lot of other folks, had some very complex classes in, in chemical engineering and thermodynamics. And there's often a lot of times where people would get stuck on a problem and they would just move on and on a test, say. And what I, started to realize I got really good at besides sitting in the front row and making sure the teacher knew who I was and going to office hours and putting in the extra work, showing them that I cared, I wanted to be there. But on on that test, instead of just moving on from that problem, what I, what I figured out is I'm going to explain where I'm stuck and let the teacher know that I truly understand this concept. But there's they always put that little nuance on that test question that you got to really have a deep, deep understanding. But if I can show them, I understand fundamentally what that twist is and why I can't figure it out because of, you know, who knows, maybe it's, um, I don't know if it should be a negative or a positive or, you know, uh, the units or something like that. If I, if I can explain that to them, then, then maybe they'll give me partial credit and, you know, probably 10 times out of 10, they did. And they, they appreciated that, that level of effort. And I think that's where it started to click. And again, when you're dealing with complex projects, it's, it's very interactive. I was always the guy that they wanted to present, you know, whether it's a senior project or, or whatever it was. And that builds confidence, right? And that confidence, you just keep going and going. And, and I think that laid the foundation, which ultimately led me to, to where I'm at. Well, well, speaking of where you're at, you know, you were designing drainage systems. Yeah, one town over, but it's a bit of a stretch of the imagination for, for one to say, okay, it totally makes sense that this manager of engineering teams doing drainage systems would get recruited, or I'm not exactly sure how the relationship started with IGS, one of the largest retailers of energy in the United States, to start a division, 
right? Like we're not talking about like do the same thing you've been doing. You were able to demonstrate a capability that they saw of being a self-starter and being uh, disciplined at, at taking action. So kind of take me back to the moment where it became clear to you there was an opportunity to move over to IGS as a retail energy provider. Yeah, so it's, I don't know if it's interesting or not, but here, how the story is, is that once, I guess, president COO of ADS moved over to IGS and I wasn't even sure he knew who I was. And now I would say he's a bit of a mentor of mine, but two years or three years after he made that transition, he randomly called me out of the blue and said, hey, I'm thinking about starting this new division for, is actually combined heat and power. And I think you would be perfect with your engineering background, your business development, your discipline. And, you know, at that time, they, we do a lot of these, uh, I think it's pretty common, a lot of these personality tests. So they worked with another company it's called um, G and Betty and Associates up in New England. And and I think when they were looking for somebody, he said, hey, this this is one of the guys you need if, if you want this business to be successful. So I actually made the jump over to IGS it was something I always wanted to get into. Obviously, environment, clean energy. I was super energized. I mean, cleaner energy, I'll say, because it's CHP at the time. And one of one of the the gentlemen who worked with me was by far was my best employee. Came with me. There's probably folks that are listening as as I was in the same position, uh, perhaps ignorant of what IGS is you know it's it's a big business but there are lots of big businesses in the united states i was super really super surprised to find that igs is the largest retailer of energy in the united states that sort of blew my mind what else should i know about igs so yeah i mean the growth has been massive since i've i've gotten there but uh igs is as you said is the largest also privately held so it's owned by the white family energy supplier in the u.s meaning in choice markets, as we call them, are markets that are deregulated, where you're not necessarily getting power from the utility. The utility is obviously transmitting your power, you know, through distribution lines, but you can have the right to choose who your energy supplier is. IGS is in most of those markets. We have over two million gas and electric customers, a few billion dollars in revenue, over seventy utilities. And it's just an amazing culture, an amazing place to work. So to come in and have the opportunity to start a new division in a company like that is, you know, it's once in a lifetime, honestly. And I think the, the, the neatest thing about IGS right now that you should know is that we're also the first major energy supplier to have a goal to be carbon neutral by 2040. And 100% of our new customers that sign up for gas or electric get either carbon neutral gas or green power. So we, we have a rec associated to effectively provide, you know, green power through that renewable energy credit to any residential customer who signs up. How do you get carbon neutral gas? Honestly, I was, I was trying to find out from my supply team the other day how they procure that much carbon neutral gas. What does it mean um, to be carbon neutral for gas? Like that doesn't... It'd be waste gas that generally that's how I think of it, whether it's methane or, you know, something from an industrial process, landfill gas, like, you know, back in CHP days, we did a Got landfill it. gas to energy so project. So it's not combusted There's, gas. This is uh, off-gassing that com- gets collected. That's my understanding. Got yeah, it. I'm not okay. an expert. Cool. Well, not that makes two of us. Neither of us are experts, but um, <laughs> but it's actually something that I'm just trying to, I'm, I want to make sure that folks can really understand like what the business of IGS is. And by and large, as you said, that it's gas and electricity customers. 
So for those who are unfamiliar with combined heat and power, that's where you were recruited in to help start this division. What were you meant to focus on? Explain like the thesis of a combined heat and power business, like who the target clients are, et cetera. So combined heat and power or CHP is simply taking a combustion engine And one of the greatest byproducts of creating electricity this way is heat. So if you could capture that heat and recycle it, you can lower your total energy costs because you don't have to buy that elsewhere or pay more for electricity that you're just turning and creating heat. So with combined heat and power be well suited, say for predominantly you think of hospitals is a great application because they use a lot of heat, whether it's sterilization or even laundry facilities. We've done some smaller ones, like even a YMCA where they have a heated swimming pool and there's a great cost to, to heating that pool year round. So there's, there's several applications, obviously industrial applications. What makes it interesting as well is distributed generation. So you could put it on Island mode if you set it up correctly. And then if the grid goes down, you can still produce power. So think you're, I'm just going to pick, think you're a major pharmaceutical company. And if you lose power for one second, you have to throw your whole batch away. And it, and it might take you a day or a week to set up that batch to, to run, I don't know, if you're making Tylenol or whatever drug you're making. And in that case, they're going to have not only an economic benefit of capturing that heat and reusing it, but a massive benefit for not having to throw that product out should the grid go down or be interrupted even for a minute. And you could, in some ways, even liken that to uh, a grocery store that maybe is in an area that's prone to blackouts and they have to throw away all their you know, frozen food. So obviously, I mean, that was a natural fit for IGS being a huge gas retailer where you think, hey, this is perfect. It's kind of a bridge to ultimately where we're really ran into uh, now of, with renewables. It's using gas, which is you know, cleaner than than coal. And it's super efficient because you're capturing this waste heat and reusing it. I think one of the problems with CHP, and again, it, it works great for those handful of applications, but because you can't get a 15-year gas contract, it's a lot harder to give that stability, whereas solar is much more elegant. Okay. There's no moving parts. As we'll talk about, you've written more than a half a billion dollars in contracts for solar, not CHP. When did that pivot happen? So yeah, we went to uh, PV America up in Boston and we were, we were there with our combined heat and power booth. And I think there was more than a dozen people that came by and said, you guys are in the wrong business. You need to be in solar and, and being a privately held company, you know, our owners had uh, an internal tax appetite, which was great for utilizing the tax credit. We are an energy company, so we want to be a long-term provider of energy. And when you think about solar, it's a long-term contract to supply power, uh, whereas on our normal contract for commodity might be two years. Now you have a 25-year contract. And by the way, I can tell you what your power is going to cost 25 years from now. So all those things are super appealing to to have that 25-year customer and to own these projects and be able to offset tax for companies maybe that that couldn't do it themselves. It really was a good fit. And, and frankly, we pivoted very quickly to solar. We started owning a lot of small nonprofits predominantly where we started. And there was a real feel good to that as well, where they can't monetize the tax credit. So they need someone to step up and own it, at least for the first five years, which is the tax credit recapture period. And we did a lot of good things in that space for a while. It was a great business. It is a great business. 
what questions, maybe even at PV America, did you start to ask when you started to really understand A, like what were the questions where you, folks are saying you're in the wrong business. What did you reciprocate with? Like, well, tell me what the right business is. Like, what did your curious <laughs> biz dev mind start asking questions about even at PV America to try and wrap your head around the business opportunity? I think there's a few just intuitive things there, right? Solar's here now. Mm. It wasn't, I mean, this was eight years ago, but, and a lot of people were still thinking it's the future, but it wasn't. Mm. I mean, solar is there now. Not that there weren't good incentives for combined heat and power, but they were hyper-specific geographically. And and frankly, a lot of the places where those incentives uh, applied, we didn't supply gas to. Maybe it wasn't a deregulated market. So that made it even more difficult. We had to buy someone else's gas to, you know, to run our, our engine. I think what really what had us enamored is, so wait, our biggest, like, like I was saying earlier, our, our biggest objection with CHP, you could save me a lot of money in the next three years or maybe five years, but what happens when your gas contract's up? Wh- what if gas prices spike? They're at a historical low. Having that fixed rate, you, even if it's an escalator product, but knowing what the cost of your power is going to be 25 years ago, I think that, that well, was let me the ask, key. Let me ask you a question then. So you're sitting there, you're realizing, okay, that I, we know the biggest objection is these three-year contracts, the volatility of gas prices, you're asking yourself, and I presume others around you, so, well, how are solar projects financed? Like, what's the, what's the levelized cost of electricity? Like, what is the, what's the energy hedge look like for my client if I switch to solar? Are those similar questions to what you were thinking? Of course, yeah. And obviously, it varies greatly by market and where you're at in the mm. country and how much sunshine you get and local incentives, whether it's a solar renewable energy credit or something else. Um, so it, there was a lot to learn. Some of the listeners are going to be thinking, well, what year was this? It was roughly 2013, 2014, right? This is middle of um, sort of towards the end of Obama era, uh, era funds and uh, incentives and price drops, like tremendous price drops from when um, when your your predecessors or even the folks you know running IGS would have looked at solar maybe three, four years ago. But prior to that, they would have said, yeah, costs aren't there yet. Uh, but there's there's one critical element that you at IGS with a huge retail business was able to leverage that not other not a ton of other players. Well, they're they're kind of two resources. One's the technical sort of back of house, but the other is financial. Right? When did it occur to you that you had sort of these two arrows in your quiver that some of the folks at PV America and maybe even in the region broadly couldn't wield as efficiently as you? And and how did you start to package that? And that was really the pitch to to ownership when we did our first one. And and Scott White, the the owner of IGS, is a big proponent of conscious capitalism. So when we started talking about we could save a nonprofit, say, you know, it could be I've done a lot of different projects from everything from religious institutions to like the Crescent Shriners. When you say, hey, look, you, you can do this project, get a fair rate of return, offset your tax, which the nonprofit can't. No one else will touch them because they're not investment grade, but this is a really feel good thing. And you could save them 30% on their energy bill now. And you predict out into the future what that's going to look like and give them long-term stability. I I think it all started coming together. Now, obviously, as we evolved, as you know, it, it got much more complex. So, you know, we don't have any funds anymore where we're both cash and tax equity, because when you do those two together, there's some other repercussions that, uh, you know, I think is a little bit 
too in the weeds for this conversation, but there's, there's a lot of different things and and it it starts to get pretty complicated pretty quickly um, when you develop these funds and and we're on, I think we're closing our seventh residential fund now. And we have, I can't even count how many commercial funds, probably, probably about equivalent amount of commercial funds as well. Yeah. And when you're talking about building a fund, you're effectively meaning packaging what we refer to as tax equity, which is your tax liability that you can reinvest through the ITC investment tax credit into these projects and be able to own assets instead of having a tax liability. And just like simply stated, when did it become clear to you that 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 lever was one that you could deploy through IGS? Was it like you were asking questions and like a light bulb went off? Were you just reading? How did that happen? Yeah, I think we found out pretty quickly when we did our first project that it wasn't until you did your first project. No, I mean, we didn't know what we didn't know. I mean, you got to it wasn't even you got to remember, you know, a month prior, solar wasn't even a, a vision. Okay. So how'd you get your <laughs> uh, first actually, project? We says, great. We, we bought a distressed asset that was almost at, at PTO. It was for a church and it was a carport actually for a church in Staten Island. Mm. So we, we came up with the concept of solar and had our first solar array within probably three months. If That's I'm, amazing. Memory serves correct. And you just balance sheet financed it. it. Correct. So that's what made it easy, right? So that's what I'm saying. We did a lot of things then that we don't do now. Like obviously, you know, when people look at a solar project, there's generally three components. There's there's the ITC that you mentioned, the Federal Investment Tax Credit, which is at the time was 30, now it's 26%. There's the cash equity piece, who's the owner, and that can even be subdivided sometimes. And then there's the debt. So those are the, the the three pillars, I would say. And you can look at it just very generically and every every fund's a little different as a third, a third, a third, I think is how most people look at it. Although with the cheap debt you can get these days, you could you could probably, and in the more comfort, I think banks are having lending against these, uh, you could probably get more debt than that now. But that that's how these things are, are typically structured now, especially in, in residential. It was a learning process. It wasn't, it wasn't that intuitive. We stumbled through it. We did these small projects for a very long time, for, for a few years before we started getting bigger funds. And, and they unfortunately, you know, that's where it starts to not be as efficient. It's really hard to do those projects. I remember like you specifically saying we were grinding out projects that nobody else would take. <laughs> like, yeah, we it. were leveraging our tax appetite as our, uh, as our sort of school uh, or our, our course on on solar. So you lean in realizing you've got this tax appetite. You can leverage it to offer a tax structure known as a power purchase agreement where you own the asset and the customer pays for only the power generated. And you can offer it through, like you said, conscious capitalism to nonprofits, which are famously difficult and like hospitals, churches, government agencies, like all these in many ways, in many cases, like schools, they, they sort of operate in this nonprofit area. Schools have access to other types of funds, but there is this sort of hinterland of projects, usually what in the call it certainly below 100 kilowatts, but up until like maybe one or two megawatts that could be beautiful projects if someone just had tax equity to apply to the project because the nonprofit doesn't. Exactly. And and when it was a wholly owned fund and we're both cash and tax, well, that's not not the most efficient structure, it, it enabled us to do things. So, I mean, the first thing we always looked at for a project in, is, is it, you know, is this project bankable? Can I get debt against it? So even though it was our cash, we still had to make sure we could get debt against it. And we found we could do that by, instead of having an investment grade off taker that we could use Moody's to shatter rate 
the financial statements of this nonprofit just to get get that lending ability. And if you could unlock that, which we did very successfully, then as you mentioned, there was a, a ton of projects in that really at the time, I'd say it's below 500 KW space that we could do. And those led to bigger and bigger projects. We ended up doing over a two megawatt array for the First Baptist Church of Glen Arden, which is a mega church in, in Maryland, just outside of DC. Uh, I believe that's one of the biggest nonprofit arrays. Uh, and there, there might be a bigger one out there at this point, but we, we did another massive project for the Catholic Charities in Washington, DC. And, you know, as we got bigger and bigger, then we started to push more into what you would traditionally think of as the commercial solar space. Um, we did some massive projects and is still by far our biggest customer is Amazon. Um, we did some pro- projects with a lot of other Fortune 500, Fortune 50 com- companies. Yeah. I mean, your first project was Amazon was 18 megawatts. This is not like a tiny Johnny Come Lately <laughs> project, right? Um, I still see it when I, if I ever fly into Newark, you, you pass over one of the buildings, which I think has to be still to this day, one of the largest continuous rooftops. I believe it was 36 acres. I have to wow. do that math, but it was, I mean, you're talking, you know, uh, I don't even want to guess more than 20,000 panels. And it was eight over eight megawatts on one continuous rooftop. And that's beautiful. I used to joke with people when I was on site that you could see the curvature of the earth from up there, but it's, it, <laughs> It's got a great view of of New York City skyline, that's for sure. And you fly right over it when you're going into the Newark airport. So I still see it a lot. That's awesome. That's like having your own, um, like, uh, like your own award that's like permanently on public display. (laughs) You know, Um, I have a, I have a separate question though, because I'm glad that you brought up the the shadow rating. I I don't understand it at first blush. And I've talked to Oleg at Bragawat. Like, I know this is sort of how they have structured their fund. And like, you're not alone in the idea or concept. You were certainly early, I would say earlier than most, maybe all, um, to actually get projects banked on this. But I find that as I've sort of started to break down your biz dev strategy and, and like in retrospect, it's easy to see a strategy probably in it. It didn't feel much like a strategy. It felt like falling forward. But the two things that I see gave you early scale and correct me if I'm wrong. And then also like, please amplify these elements were the ability to do what you called shadow rating, which you said you use Moody's. I'd love to understand that better. The other is really understanding the problem areas of the market and being an outlet for these not so perfect projects that you could leverage your efficient systems. We'll get to in a minute to do better and more efficiently and effectively. And you probably were able to take a lower return than say Sun Edison. So explain to me why shadow ratings and like a partnership with Sun Edison gave you loft. Yeah, I mean, Sun Edison was one of my first calls. Everyone's like, what are you doing calling a competitor? It's like, well, if they don't want to do projects less than than 500 KW, and they were obviously the gorilla, right? The largest solar company in the world. How do you know they don't want to do projects under 500 KW? Because everyone says I have a project under 500 KW and no one will do it. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's what it comes to. So you go, if like everybody's telling me nobody will take these projects under 500 K. You're like, all right, well, if that's true, let's call it universally. Let me call the biggest company, which means they have the biggest pipeline and see if it's true for yeah, them. Exactly. Yeah. And, and uh, that's like a stroke of genius, which, honestly, from a biz dev perspective. The other thing we did was, so the hardest part, as you know, on the commercial side is, is contracting. I mean, hands down and trying to haggle with attorneys over really minute details in a 25 year contract who may or may not know anything about solar 
takes a lot of time. So we we adopted the NREL contract at one point, which is the National Renewable Energy Laboratory. And they have a, a they call it a SAFSI, Solar Access to Public Capital contract. And they're trying to standardize it, which was a great move, I think, for the industry. So we took that and we just said, hey, look, this is even our contract. We're not going to allow any changes. We tried to take as much That's friction. That's awesome. You're like, this is a government possible. contract. <laughs> yeah. And, and then, you know, we just said, hey, Sun Ed, like anything you guys get, you know, we'll we'll basically buy from you, pay pay a, a spiff for it, and wow, we'll we'll take it take it the rest of the way. And I mean, once word catches on that you're in that space and there's not a lot of people there, we had more projects coming at us that than we can handle, frankly, with our team. I'm gonna go back to something that's so like I love that you just share both of those ideas uh, because the 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 other element of making this work is not having to constantly reinvent the wheel and like be held up by the sales prevention office, which is the legal team, by having a standard contract, by having a master service agreement, which I'm sure you guys probably at some point put in place with SunEd, because I did the same thing on the West Coast with SunEd for, uh, for for one of my early uh, uh, solar teams. Um, and it's a great model. Like I can tell you Sun Edison was the fastest path to scale for a lot of contractors around the around the US um, that were able to get on their like shortlist where you could kind of, kind of claim projects or pipeline or better yet, like you did have them sending you pipeline because they believed that you could get it done. But you had to separate the wheat from the chef of what they sent you. You didn't build every project they sent you. Can we talk about a little bit how you did this shadow rating thing to make sure lenders could get on board and it looked like a good transaction or you made sure that it in fact did rate as a good transaction? Yeah, sure. So that, I'd say that was the biggest challenge of all of this. It, and, it, and it sounds simple in a lot of ways, but it required, it generally required these nonprofits to have audited or at least reviewed CPA reviewed financials, which was the number one yeah. hurdle. And at one point, actually, I was interviewing accountants in New Jersey and I was going to pay for all these nonprofits to get <laughs> audited financials so we could shadow rate them. But how it works is, you know, generally, if you look at a publicly traded company, you could see what their their grade is or, uh, you know, what their rating is. Are they A rated, A plus? Um, there's, there's different scales. And what Moody's has a has a tool, and they're, they're the predominant um, company that that does these or you know assigns these ratings to publicly traded companies. But if you put in certain aspects of audited financials, you can get out if they were public, what would they be rated at? So it's not a true rating; it's a shadow rating. And that's I'm trying to keep it super simple, but that that's that's basically what it is. So at one point, I just basically had four metrics and I honestly don't remember them off the top of my head that I would ask a company. I'd be like, hey, if you if you meet these four things, the odds are you're going to pass. And that saved everyone a, a lot of time and effort, because, again, that's that's the number one thing to get these jobs off the ground. And it's still uh, a problem, I think, that the industry faces today in, in all aspects. You know, another problem that the industry faces today is that everybody has to build it on their own and the good companies can leverage other resources or where they see opportunities. And there's right now we're seeing a solution to this in the marketplace with the hottest summer of M&A we've probably ever experienced in the solar and broader clean tech industry. But at the time, 2014, uh, at a time when you were starting this little division in a otherwise billion dollar company, others were having massive layoffs. I, I remember you said that one of the executives said, hey, are we running into a burning building here? Tell me about how you realized that the way that you were set up as an organization was fundamentally 
different and meant that where Sunrun was laying off 500 people, you were not going to need to hire 500 people. Yeah. And again, I think it all comes down to trying to structure it to be very efficient. I think I gave away a few of the the secrets and tips and tricks that I use to be as efficient as possible, you know, whether it's trying to standardize contracts and work with good repeatable partners or even have those partners bring us jobs. I mean, one of our, our number one strengths actually I found was not necessarily tax was the fact that we had to cash to build these things, which went a long way when you're talking to people, right? We didn't have to go raise the money. We did have to make sure we could get debt against them so that we could still get our, our levered return. But ultimately having that cash, I think was, was a big difference maker in the early days. And what, what your question was pointed to was more around uh, when I started the residential solar division. So fast forward two years to IGS and like, Hey guys, I, I think we're in the wrong business. You, you want repeatable. We should be in residential solar. And at that time, I think within a year, it was like NRG constellation. There was spruce one roof. I mean, you can go through Tesla's laid off their whole sales team. And that's when I, I asked them, I said, are, are we are we running into a burning building here? It feels like, and, and here we are now um, years later. And I think there's only like maybe four third-party owners of residential solar left really at, at any scale. Uh, obviously we're much smaller than our publicly traded counterparts. But Who are those? Still, Just for people to recognize who you're talking about. I think it's Sunrun, Sonova, maybe who else? I'd say SunPower. SunPower? Even though they're yeah. more of a... They're more of a manufacturer first, I think. I mean, I don't know. You can ask them what their business model is, but they <laughs> yeah. still do. Uh, they still do uh, third-party ownership, which is a lease or a power purchase agreement. For residential systems, correct? Yeah. Oh, wow. So, outside of that, I mean, it, but you had to use their panel, right? So that's their whole yeah. gimmick, and then and then basically everybody else. If you thing. look at like uh, Lone Pal now, Good Leap, uh, Dividend, Sunlight. Mosaic, they're all looking at a different financial structure. They're not TPO, third-party ownership, which is a PPA. They're yep. looking at leasing or or loans. They're that's just the, a loan. Right. That's the differentiation that you're making. Okay. Yeah. About- so I don't consider them true competitors. I mean, in some way they are, but I look at it like this. When you go to a car dealership, I don't want to make a gross generalization, but I would assume most people know if they want to own the car or lease the car. Right. And I, I view solar the same way. It, it's there are people that waffle because they don't under, fully understand the benefits of each. But generally speaking, if they're getting into this 25 year commitment, whether it's a loan or having IGS own the, the solar on the roof and build them for the power, they're going to have their mind made up generally if they want to own it or not. And the other aspect of that is, can they monetize the ITC? So that, that that's a little bit of a, of a wrinkle if, if they don't have enough uh, tax appetite to digest the investment tax credit, then it kind of naturally pushes them to a TPO product and allows a company like ours to, to monetize that for them. Right. Which is the, all the nonprofits. (laughs) Yeah. And I, so I don't really view them as the loan providers as in, just in my view, I mean, I'm sure that it's obviously competitive in some way, but you know, well, sticking on like maybe bringing in a, some current events, but sticking with this loan uh, versus lease versus the third-party ownership, policy drives a lot of this. We've talked about ITC dropping down from 30% uh, at a federal level to 26, and it's on a step down uh, over years, over a few years. We we currently have the President Biden infrastructure bill going through the House and Senate uh, that is suggesting, and it looks like it might pass, this idea of direct pay and uh, and perhaps even bringing the ITC back up to 30% for another 10 years, both which both of which would be pretty remarkable. 
How do you see that uh, impacting or hurting uh, these businesses that we've just discussed, like your own model for TPO versus loans and leases? That's a fair question. I think that I would be my belief that a direct pay certainly would make a loan product more in the competitive realm to TPO then. I still think there's a, a vast subset of people, just in the analogy I gave earlier with buying a car, that won't would not want to take out the debt. I mean, a lot of a lot of people just look at debt as a bad thing these days, and um, they don't want it. So even with the direct pay, it's a good thing. But I still don't think it's going to make a huge difference between loan and TPO because here's why. Most people that get a loan right now, and I've talked to a few loan providers, and it's what they've told me that is upwards of 90%, roll the tax credit back into their loan to keep their payment low. So a lot of times how this works is they'll say, okay, Mr. Customer, you want to own this. Your loan is $150, but you owe us, say, the federal investment tax credit, the 26%, just use a round number, is $10,000. You owe us $10,000 in 18 months, or your payment goes from 150 to 225 for the rest of the 25 years or 20 years or however long you choose. So a lot of people end up rolling that tax credit back in anyway. So I don't know how much that would be different than a direct pay. Because what they really want is lowering their personal operating expense, right? The same way, same conversation we have with CNI customers all day long. Like this is just an OPEX that you don't have, like that we can hedge for the next 25 years, as opposed to you putting it into your CapEx and owning this asset and then dealing with the disposition of it and dealing with fixing it and blah, blah, blah. Sure. I do think it allows folks that can't monetize the ITC now that want a loan to get it as long as they have, you know, meet the credit criteria. For sure. Um, that, That I think it does. Outside of that, I'm not sure it makes much much of a big impact. And in that regard, what it does is broaden the spectrum of potential clients. Because now, instead of folks that do have tax appetite knocking down the doors of Sunrun, now middle income, lower to moderate income families also can say, hey, I can afford the payments and I want this and I'll take the direct pay instead of like having to deal with this whole tax thing because I I don't have a huge tax appetite. Exactly. And I I think that's one of the the biggest problems with solar today is is uh, equity. And that's that's something that I've been out to solve. And one of the things I'm going to solve here uh, before my time is done is is how to get get solar more in the hands of the people that need it the most, because I believe that everyone should have the right and ability to purchase affordable, clean energy. And I think the LMI community is the most underserved. And honestly, I think it's the only real knock that anyone has against against solar in general, where they consider it some kind of odd regressive tax. I'm sure you've heard about this before, you know, because every time, just, I guess, for the people listening, if if you go solar because you have the tax appetite, which means you make more money, then you're not paying as much into the grid because the grid you're offsetting the the distribution costs as well because it's on-site distributed gener- generation and because of, of this other issue that I think will continue to come up time and time again is, is net metering. And I know you just did a great debate on that. So if anyone wants to learn more about net metering, they can go listen to that. <laughs> Thank um, you. <laughs> but uh, outside of that, I, I think it all stems from having equity with low to moderate income customers. Mm-hmm. We still haven't cracked that code yet, although I feel like I get closer every day. It's kind of mm-hmm. a passion side project of mine. And I'm sure it's one that, you know, it's one I talk to ownership about that that we'll figure out at some point. 
and I don't think we're that far away, but I guess for, for those that don't know, I believe LMI is, is defined as someone who makes less than 80% of the median area income. They would consider be considered low to, low to moderate income. And um, it doesn't mean that they, they don't have good credit, um, but it does mean that they might have trouble financing it or otherwise having access to solar. I know when, when people look at leads, you know, IGS doesn't really, we don't really sell solar. We have turnkey developers that do that for us, but a lot of these leads, you know, target specific zip codes where they have a greater possibility of passing credit. Cause there's like we talked about on the commercial side, the bankability and financeability is the number one thing you got to look at when you're trying to put a, a portfolio of projects together. You're probably familiar with Energy Toolbase. I mean, nearly 1,500 organizations worldwide utilize ETB Developer to quantify the savings and economics of their projects. But did you know that ETB provides a comprehensive suite of software products to help model, control, and monitor solar and energy storage projects all in one platform? That's right. I know you're probably familiar with their industry-leading modeling, but controls, monitoring? Yeah. Acumen EMS software is actually fully integrated with energy storage giants like BYD, Delta, Dynapower, and Sakamek, leveraging AI and machine learning to forecast, control, and optimally discharge energy storage systems operating in the field. Or maybe you are looking for ETB Monitor to gain complete transparency into the operational performance and true dollar savings of your operating fleet. Well, if I were you, I'd schedule a Zoom with one of ETB's knowledgeable account managers you can mention Suncast when you sign up for your free trial and you get a 30-day extended free trial. You can also just click on the tool-based logo at mysuncast.com or in our newsletters or right there in the description of today's episode in whatever app you're listening to this on to take full advantage of this free trial. Don't wait. Hey, pardon the interruption, but I wanted to just let you know how much of an impact you have on Suncast. Yeah, you. Thank you for clicking play. Without you, this show is just me shouting into the void. But there's still people who don't even know about Suncast. I know. I can hardly believe it myself. (laughs) But that's where you can help me yet again. There's a simple way that you can show some love and help others discover the show. If you cruise over to www.ratethispodcast.com forward slash suncast, I'd love it if you would leave a five-star rating and enthusiastic review. That's possibly the single kindest thing that you could do for me today. So if the show has helped, inspired, or even entertained you at all, I'd love it if you would head over to ratethispodcast.com forward slash suncast and give me a virtual two thumbs up. All right, back to today's episode. Well, we've talked about the, uh, the, the CNI market and LMI, which uh, in many cases kind of, kind of falls in the CMI market in, in many ways because they tend to be in, in buildings or communities. But we've we sort of hinted at how you've begun to really scale the business and become one of the really the top four uh, lenders or asset owners in the space in residential competing with Sunrun and Sonova. What do you think from your perspective, intentional or otherwise, you are doing differently in the marketplace that gives you efficiency and scale and advantage, apart from the fact that you have, what, over 2 million customers in the marketplace that, whose not door you can knock on in, uh, in a choice market? That is true. A lot of those customers, though, are not in good solar markets. Um, so there's not a lot of overlap, which is 
hopefully something that that will change in the future. But I think, you know, this kind of likens back to the question you're asking about when I realized on the commercial side that we had an advantage and how we could, you know, shatter rate customers and use our own cash and tax was was really a, a massive advantage. Well, in the residential space, when I started lobbying to to get into the residential business, I think the same time that that everyone else was getting out, how I pitched it to the ownership was like I wanted to build something like um, the best example I could think of was insurance. Uh, we have, at the time, we only had about 300 individuals at IGS and over 100 of them were IT. So how can we take as much friction out of the process as possible, make it super smooth? Because, you know, one of the reasons I believe cancellation rates are so high in residential solar, and, and you can look at the reporting of these public companies, they're, they're, they're very high. It is, you know, you get a little bit of buyer's remorse, they have time to shop, but it's really a fact that the process takes so long. So how can we take that process and condense it as much as possible? Obviously, you can't do everything about the permitting. I know CIA is doing a great effort uh, in, in like California, for instance, and there's some same day permits and trying to make it online, especially as a result of COVID. And that's certainly going to help. But from our perspective, when we look at ourselves almost as much as an IT company, as an energy company, how can we leverage our strength to really get into this market. Sure, we have the cash and we have the tax, but what else do we have? And I I think it came down to a few things. The very first thing we did was we took these standard contracts, which again, I talked about in the commercial space, but we took this this contract that's still in a lot of ways for a lot of these other companies is 26 pages. And we boiled it down to seven and we tried to make it very consumer friendly. Like instead of, the analogy I always use, instead of looking like the iTunes iTunes terms and conditions that are all just black and white, small print, you know, you're scrolling through it on your phone, like who reads this? To something that's appealing, that makes it so you want to read it, you want to understand it, that you're not intimidated by it. I do think since that time, there's some other companies that have, have followed suit. They have a really nice front page where it you know, shows the rate super big and the term, and it has like all the main frequently asked questions right on the first page. Um, so I, that was that was 100% the first thing we did. The second thing we did was we went and talked to some of the largest turnkey EPCs in the country and said, hey, you know, I was already in there doing nonprofits with them. Our first one was with Trinity Solar, who's also very conscious, co- very conscious capitalism too. So it was a good fit. And after I kind of, as as uh, their owner was said, earned my stripes uh, doing some nonprofits with them that no one else would do, we started talking about, hey, like, what are your troubles in the residential space? And a lot of it boiled down to the same things. It's that they, you know, I don't want to speak for them, but I'll just say in general that when you're a large publicly traded company, you you have this tendency to kind of, you have hundreds of partners, you're boxing in the biggest partners into a process that maybe they feel that they can do better or they want to take more of that responsibility on. So that the first thing we started is like, what do you absolutely need in a system to sell um, you know, PPA or a lease? And how can we make that as efficient as possible? Like things like getting rid of change orders. We don't have any change orders. No, There's no a, change a orders. few different things. No, we put, so we do that by being hyper transparent. So we have a pipe pricing engine where they can put in you know, the EPC based on the, the design that they do. So we don't have our own design tool. The EPC can put in what the, the PPA rate they want to sell that customer is and what the yield is. And we're super transparent on how to get that yield. 
And when they do that, it'll give them a price. And then it's up to the EPC to decide, do I need to sell a higher rate or a lower rate? Obviously we put guardrails on the upper end of that rate because we want everyone to save money. So we, we don't let them sell above, not that many of them would anyway, but we don't let them sell above the brown power rate. Um, but what happens is say the customer says, I want to take all these panels off of the front of my house, or I don't want them over the garage or, or whatever aesthetically they can rerun it very transparently in our app and say, okay, well, I was going to get X amount per watt. Now I'm going to get 20 cents less per watt. I need to amend this contract. Okay, Mr. Customer, we can absolutely do that, but you're taking off efficient panels for less efficient panels. So instead of 10 cents, we're going to have to give you a 10.5 cent rate. And they can do all that from our app with a click of a button. And there's no there's no approval from us. There's no added friction. You can be done, you know, in a matter of minutes. It's all automated. If that's what they want to do. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's phenomenal. I mean, that's obviously something that you could lean on that not, not every business can lean on when you've got a huge IT infrastructure that already is involved in billing customers. For yeah. Their- we already bill over 2 million customers. And you know, the other thing I would, I would say is that again, it's all in the terms of efficiency. So one of the first things we did as well, that, there's a lot of debate over, but I was pretty adamant about is let's let's not do everything. Like we need to do 95% of customers fall into one bucket. Let's do that 95% extremely well and not get distracted in the early years with doing, I'll give you a couple of examples, like trusts. Like there's a lot of customers have their homes in trust, especially in California. We weren't in California yet at the time, so we didn't have to add trust till we got to California. But ground arrays is another example. You know, I get calls all the time. Why didn't you? We do those now, but in the beginning, we stayed very disciplined. Back to bringing it to the beginning of the interview, you know, we we stayed very disciplined in our lane. Like we are going to do the 95% to capture all those customers better than anyone else, extremely well with as little friction as possible. We're going to have the best, clearest contract. And we've never sold on price alone. And I think that's how we've been able to survive down to the you know last four or five TPO providers and, and how we've been able to go up against some of these big national players. You mentioned the front page and, and you said something to me in a previous conversation that I want to pull back in here because I think that I want folks to really grasp the level of discipline and conscious like awareness that you have. And, and I'll say like within the team as well, but it seems to me like you've, been a driving force of this is understanding the customer journey. And you actually referred to it as trying to get to a frictionless customer journey. A great example of that is seeing the EPC as your customer, whereas a lot of the uh, the owner entities like IGS would see just the residential homeowner as the customer. And there's a transactional relationship with the EPC. But like you guys have done thousands of homes with Trinity, the ability to create not only a frictionless customer journey for Trinity with their customer in the field, but between you and Trinity, talk to me about that. You know, when we first started looking at the process with them, we had the ability to look at it with a blank slate and approach it as, what do you think the customer journey should look like? Where should IGS get involved? When, obviously you introduce them at the point of sale, but when do you want to take over communication so we're not duplicating effort? Really cut it out to make it as smooth as possible. And honestly, that's something that we're still working on. I mean, it's continuous improvement. Do you set up like a, I mean, what does that look like on the ground as a biz dev leader? Like, are you setting up specific calls where like the intention of the call is to break down that customer journey and really understand it? Or is it just through 
the trial and error and like having this fabric of interactions that you and the team can sit down and say, okay, here's where we had friction. Here's where we had friction. How do you set that up? I think it starts by asking childlike, very curious questions about the process, what works, what doesn't to the EPC, you know, what are your pain points? And then, oh yeah, we can fix that, right? That doesn't seem difficult. And and part of that is because, I think part of it is candidly is probably because we're a privately held company. So we're able to do those things. But the other part of it is, again, we started from a blank slate, right? It'd be really hard once you're into it to like for us to make a massive change to our process now would be difficult. But we, we went down the path where we consciously chose that we weren't gonna have, for instance, a proposal tool. Like now there are smaller engineering procurement and construction firms that we refer to as EPCs that want a proposal tool. And, and there's a lot of places you can get those now, right? So, but we we didn't think that's not our expertise, right? I wouldn't say designing solar but you've is got our a, expertise. But you've got an app, like why not integrate something like Solo or Aurora into the app? Or maybe you have. Those are things that we talk about a lot. And uh, one of the things that we talk about behind closed doors is just staying focused on the low hanging yeah. fruit. I mean, we've talked about, you know, people ask me just, just today, why don't you guys have a loan product? Why don't you have a this? Like I said, it's doing that 95% really well. It's got Man. us where we are. And then we can focus. add things as it's appropriate, right? Like there's, why aren't you in XYZ state? Well, that state comes and goes and now it's gone. And yeah. so we try not to chase states. We try to be you know, or, or programs, I should say, or incentives yeah. and, and just be very disciplined in where do we need to be? Now, there are times where, you know, some of our large partners come to us like, we really love it if you guys could make a product here or make this work. And obviously we're going to prioritize that, right? That's low hanging scale. Food. It's an yeah. opportunity to get more volume. Exactly. And it's a constant juggling act on with IT uh, prior to the point of their frustration. We're like, no, yeah. you know, so you got to really stay, try and as much as you can stay in your lane and stay disciplined. Mm. What is going to give us the best return? And that's, that's what we're going to focus on. Let's get everybody aligned and, and let's head in that direction. So we're all, you know, singing from the same sheet of music. I'm so glad that we spent the time we did early in the conversation talking about discipline because it starts to pay, pay dividends in the, in the, re, the understanding of your, your thought process as well. I mentioned earlier that this entire interview happened because I got on the phone with Benoit, a mutual friend of ours and someone we both respect in the finance and project development game, who also has a podcast, The Solar Mavericks. And I just want to say, like, if you are salivating over this conversation right now, then I would encourage you to just go check out Benoit's conversation with uh, Nate. There are several there where he touches on being an entrepreneur and the difference between that and an entrepreneur, uh, how natural gas affects solar and electric markets, the benefits of site distribution generation, uh, on-site distribution rather, as opposed to providing it off-site, simplifying process and how that adds value. And uh, just as we discussed before, how to successfully build relationships in your market with, you know, Trinity Solar as, as one example we've talked about here. If, if those kinds of conversations really excite you and you want to dig deeper into that and Nate, how Nate thinks about it, I would encourage you to go check out another podcast. Yes, I'm recommending another podcast. Uh, called Solar Mavericks by our friend Benoit. And I just want to say thanks again to Benoit for helping me bring you uh, to the Suncast audience. I, I want to turn the focus a little bit, Nate. And I have a sense that like Benoit, I'll probably have you back and we'll just geek out on some other stuff. But I I'd be remiss if I didn't talk a bit about your own sort of internal motivation and philosophy. For those who are watching uh, the video or even the video clips, uh, if we've uh, been diligent enough to put them up on, on YouTube, they'll see that there's a little whiteboard behind you. I'd like you to talk to me about 
the power of a whiteboard and how it has become a tool for your weekly progress. Yeah, it's something that, so uh, for anyone who who follows me on LinkedIn probably knows I put out a, uh, what's now a video with a whiteboard quote. And a lot of times it's, it's just life lessons. It's things that my, my kids ask me about or something that's happened in my life that week. I make them all on, on Monday mornings. I get up early. I start thinking about the week and what had happened. And it started putting these quotes on this whiteboard because I realized even, even pre-pandemic, I, I work remotely. Uh, so I'm not in our corporate office. And when we would do Zoom meetings, that they could read things behind me. So I, I started that way just with funny quips and things. And evolved into getting quite a little bit of a following on LinkedIn for for it and turning it ultimately in, into videos. Like I said, that I, I love it because I know, and I usually share like some little semblance of a story of why I picked that quote, but I know I'm speaking generally directly to, to one of my three kids or, or somebody else in my life that I know needs to hear this. And it's just an indirect way of, of being able to share a little bit of motivation with people and I always try and pick something that's, you never know what other people are going through. And and I generally think I'm a pretty upbeat person, pretty optimistic person. And I, I just love, like, there's some, there's no motivation for me other than just people saying, hey, I, I saw that one. That was really neat. Or that was really, I saw your Monday motivation and that's what I needed to hear this week. And And to me, that's all the reason to keep doing it. Tell me what's over your shoulder right now. What's the one you shared uh, this this week? It's a, a quote. It's it's not a, actually a direct quote, um, but it's from the writings of, of Joseph Campbell from the most I can tell. And it says, the cave you fear to enter holds the treasure you seek. This one was all about getting getting outside of your comfort zone. You know, I think comfort zones are dead zones and you're either evolving or you're, or you're dying. To me, it's that simple. And I think a lot of people get comfortable and they, they stay in this zone because they're, they're scared of pushing past the fear zone into the, the growth zone. There's something about that quote that I love. And I actually got that ironically um, sent to me from the gentleman that I said left ADS to come start the CHP business with me. And I, I commented on someone's LinkedIn and, and that was his quote back to me. And I loved it. So I, I have a little journal I keep and I wrote it in there. I've just been waiting for the for the right time to to put it out there. The, the, like diehard listeners know that I keep uh, and have for probably more than a decade, I have an Evernote journal of my favorite quotes. It's now probably more than two or 300 quotes that at some point have made an impact on my life. And I literally have it tagged in Evernote for my sons, which I tag several things in Evernote that if I ever die on an air, airplane crash, yeah. like my, they'll find it. And it's a bunch of stuff that is like little wisdoms and nuggets of wisdom that I've left for them. And, and my quote board is a part of that. It reminds me a bit, frankly, of uh, earlier in the discussion. I see you in the same vein of other, I'll say like motivational speakers, but people who inspire me in that you think in terms of what you have been inspired by, books, uh, authors, et cetera. And you said earlier, discipline gives freedom. I have to imagine that at some point that's been on your whiteboard motivational Monday. It was, yeah, probably about a month ago, I want to say. And last last uh, we talked, uh, it happened to be on a Monday. I think it was uh, September 6th. And uh, you had one that really resonated with me. Lost time is never found. What does that mean for you? Yeah, I just, it means a lot of things, right? But time is the only commodity you can't get more of. And it always bothers me. 
when people say they don't have enough time to do something, because one thing I believe is that you need to manage your priorities and not your calendar. So if you really want to do it, you'll find the time to do it. And a lot of people, I'm not saying that there's not, there's certainly things I do probably that are by most opinions, somewhat of a waste of time, but I I don't watch a lot of TV, for instance, um, because that's, there's a cost to that, right? It's costing you time that you could be doing something else that you could be uh, improving yourself, your business, your, you know, physical fitness, whatever. And I I just, I hear it all too often. It's like, yeah, I don't have time for that. It's like, you can make time by getting up earlier or, um, you know, not to oversimplify it, but, or even going or to you bed could just earlier. prioritize it. Right. And it's, you know, I get the older I get, not the, that I'm old yet. I guess you're only as, as old as you feel, but a lot of people, how do you fit it all in? I, you know, I coach my, I've coached my kid's baseball team. I've two sons since, uh, one's 18 already. So for, wow, over 12 years and countless seasons, and with your, tra- you know, with this travel schedule, it's a little different with COVID now, but you know, I used to get how- all the time, how do you fit it in? And I, I think it's that simple. It's just, you got to manage your priorities and not your calendar and-, and things that you need to get done will will magically get done if you just follow that that mantra. I'm a big list guy too. I, I love my list in the morning, I got my list of things to get through. Uh, but, you know, the other side of that is understanding that you're not a failure if you don't get that through everything that day. Maybe it's just the top priority mm. the next day. Yeah. Compassion for yourself as well. Well, I I will share the link to that September 6th, uh, uh, lost times never found quip. I'd love it if, if you would go and check out that post and, and even, you know, connect or follow, uh, Nate for sure, because I think that many here will appreciate and enjoy the videos that you've been posting on Mondays. Uh, similarly, I've heard you say, uh, in, uh, I, I, I don't want to give folks the impression, impression that we talk all the time. We don't, but we have had long <laughs> conversations and I've asked you lots of questions. It's sort of thinking through and, and preparing for this conversation. And you said something that stuck out to me. You said somewhere along the line, it became a bad thing to change your mind. Yes. <laughs> what That's if true. you, uh, with that in mind, what have you changed your mind about lately? Oh man, I changed my mind about um, a lot of things, right? Uh, I, I want to say in, in the solar realm for this purpose, this conversation, one thing I, I think long and hard about is batteries and how they're going to play a role and what role exactly they're going to play in a sustainable energy future. Obviously, there's no denying there's there's a lot of value in batteries, but I do think it's skewed to a select few. Um, there's right now, there's a lot of, of value for residential customers, say in California, where they have higher rates in the evening. So you could store the power and then release it to offset more expensive power. But, you know, in addition to that, California, maybe Texas, New York, they have more outages. I mean, if you just look at it's the amount of downtime that the average American has, it's it's very small. It's, it, I think I actually have the stat written down somewhere in front of me, but ba- it, batteries it, are basically insurance for 95% of us. Yeah. I mean, it, and, and when you think of the cost of it, it, it makes me wonder if we're deploying it in the right manner. And then um, when, when you get this F-150 that can charge your home come in. So now instead of paying $30,000 for a battery that sits in your basement that you might use for an hour out of the year, now you can pay, I don't know what, what the new lightning costs, but let's say 45,000. Yeah, okay. 45, on the 60. low side. Right. So now you have utility out of it as well. I think that's going to be 
a game changer. I, I think it is a game changer. It's really neat. No doubt. Yeah. Um, no doubt. And especially in, in a world where Tesla openly says, no, no, you better not feedback power into the grid from our car. We do not authorize that. Really, it's Nissan and Ford playing that game right now. And Nissan on a very limited like vehicle to grid basis. But Ford is basically open source saying, this is what we believe in. We believe in empowering our users to use the power that they've already stored in this in this mobile in this mobile yeah. system. They just powered the set for the Sunday football commentators with the F-150. So they're they're good at marketing too. I, I yeah. This kind of goes into, I don't know if you want to get into this or not. So this kind of goes into you had asked about a bold prediction. And I, I sort of have something I've been thinking about. And again, it's changing your mind. I don't know why it became bad to change your mind. I, I think yeah. it's, it, it's something that's super important. I'm always trying to seek the truth, right? So I, I'm going to ask challenging questions. I expect people to challenge my ideas too and let the best yeah. idea win. But I definitely have an opinion on the F-150 and not just that, but loans in general and the loan space long into the future. We can, we can talk about that at the end. Yeah, for sure. So along the lines, before I, I pivot to lessons learned, along the lines of kind of current events here, uh, I mentioned a bit that the Biden administration announced this, uh, you know, the infrastructure uh, package. And as a part of it, they actually made a commitment to go from 4% to 45% of solar energy in the United States by 2050. And I, I just have an overarching question for you. Are we ready? And what's missing? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. It goes it goes right into what I want to talk about with my with my prediction. Um, Do it. We can we can future. we can find it. Yeah, we can modify the we can flex flex here. Yeah, I mean, when you look at I, I believe three percent of families living in a single family detached structure have solar. Okay, so. I think we are ready. I, I think there, there's a few things. So what, what I love about solar is, and I know, you know, being aware of the audience is probably most people would agree, you know, in cli climate change. Now, whether you agree in global warming, meaning is it man-made or not, that's up for debate still for a lot of folks. But the fact of the matter is, regardless, the earth is warming. We've had our hottest, I think the last five years have been the hottest on record with 2020 just beating out. 96, I think um, it, it, the climate is changing. And what is the downside of renewable energy? This is this is what I love about renewable energy. What is the downside? So, I mean, you're talking, if you, I'm sure you've been to LA, right? People talk about the smog. You can see it. I've been to Mexico City. You can literally see the air. What is the problem with having, even if, even if it's not man-made, what's the problem with doing something that's good for the planet to having cleaner air? I fail to see the downside risk of renewable energy. And, you know, I, to, my, my prediction is that right now, I think the, the solar loan market is, is ripe for disruption. And the reason is that I, I believe a vast majority of people, this is a generalized statement, but they, they're sold solar. They're not buying solar. So what do I mean by that? You don't wake up in the morning and say, hmm, I'm going to shop for solar today and get solar on my home like you would go to the grocery store to, to pick up dinner. Instead, you're getting a cold call, a knock on your door. You might get you know, a, a Facebook ad and you click it and then you get called. So people are still being sold solar. And this ties in a little bit to the F-150. Like if, 
people knew what really what their options are and they were more educated, I think they would approach solar differently. And that's why I think the, the loan market is ripe for disruption. I think a lot of times you get this origination fee, which they call a dealer fee, and it could be upwards of 30%, but that's that's kind of hidden to the customer. And, and there it is a trade-off. They're getting a lower interest rate for sure, but there's certainly more efficient ways to finance solar. And I think an educated buyer somebody who's buying solar is actively looking to put solar in their home is going to, you know, either refinance or get a home equity line of credit or local credit union, which you, you can do all those things. But a lot of times you're you're buying what's presented to you, which would include a battery that you may never use depending on where you're at in the country. So I think what we're waiting for is the shift, I mean, right, we're still in the early days. We're the early, early minority for sure. You know, we're not even close to entering the early adopters phase. But when I think about residential solar, why is that? I mean, on the commercial solar side, yeah, it's popular now. It's proven that people invest more in companies that are environmentally conscious and you're seeing these advertisements and things you didn't see before. But on the residential side, why is that? Well, I think a lot of times what you're seeing is just the fact that most of, you know, millennials and younger who certainly I I would say polls show are more environmentally conscious than a lot of maybe uh, people in their 40s and 50s, they don't own homes yet. But once they do and there's more of a process, and I think this is what's great with this is one thing I really admire about Elon Musk. There's a lot of things to admire about him. And Tesla, when they decided to, obviously it's not a good thing that they had to lay off all their sales sales people, but they're trying to say, how do we get to a point where people are driven with our brand to go look and, and buy solar, to make a conscious decision to go solar? And I do believe that's what, what we need to really get to the future of, of energy and of renewables. And and if it's not Tesla, I know they just, I think just this week discontinued that, that lease they were trying to do again. Regardless, if it's not them, somebody's going to figure that out. And I think it's just going to naturally occur over time. The other thing that I always get confused about is why people think it's a partisan issue. And there's some really neat studies out there and even some research done that, that shows it's really not. I mean, they now, Republicans and Democrats might do solar for different reasons, right? Maybe Republicans do it for savings or tax credit and Democrats do it. This is very general, right? But we can have this conversation. You know, they, they might do it more planet-based, but I think Pew Research, their last studies had that 84% of US adults supported the expansion of solar. So it's only a matter of time before people figure out how to finance solar more effectively. And it doesn't, it's, and, and this isn't just like, I'm not trying to take a shot at the loan loan providers because they're serving a need now, but what does that look like in the future when you can, like in California, when you buy a home with solar already on it? Well, that's just gonna be in your mortgage, right? Or, you know, the other aspect is, I think there's really high sales commissions associated predominantly predominantly with loans and that's got a course correct. And I think it will naturally over time, because if you look at an average system, let's just say it's 10 KW, maybe 27 panels at 350 a watt. If you found out that 30% of that uh, or 10,000-ish plus dollars, $10,500 is going to the loan origination to get you a 1.9% rate and that maybe another $10,000 of that is going toward sales rep commission. It might be lower or higher uh, depending on the deal. But 
that's about right. If you look at, at financial statements for these large publicly traded companies, they're building solar, you know, $1.70, $1.90. So what's the biggest cost? 100% is customer acquisition. I mean, you're looking at, at 90 cents to acquire a customer, which goes back to what we talked about earlier, why it's so imperative to get the timeline down, to get that cancellation rate down, to take the friction out so that you can retain more customers, drive that cost down, be able to support more customers, enable solar to grow. And it's only a matter of time, I think, before we we get to that point. Well, Nate, despite the fact that I could easily just wrap the interview uh, right there, because uh, I think that you have summed up in so many ways the way we both feel about the inevitability of this marketplace. And and I'm as excited coming out of this conversation as I've ever been. Uh, I do want to for those diehard uh, Suncast listeners who know that we go into kind of like how you think and and learn and sharpen the saw, I have a couple of questions for you. The first is uh, not about books you'd recommend, but when you read, as uh, I often say, readers are leaders and leaders are readers. When you read, do you have a, 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 a sort of philosophy in mind for how you're going to retain information or maybe you're just looking for kind of an overarching theme. Do you have a, a, a way that you approach reading books that helps you distill it into ways that it helps you in life? That's a good question. I never thought about it like that. To me, I think, well, with the invention of Audible, uh, yeah, reading Bookmarks. books or listening to books is almost like a time hack. And what I mean by that, like we talked about lost time is never found. I love to listen to books when I run. I usually run or bike every morning. I, I generally don't do it when I'm biking because I think it's a safety thing. But when I run, so every other day, or I'll listen to a podcast, it's just a great opportunity. Or if I'm in the car traveling for work and I don't have any meetings, it's early in the morning, late flying. Those are great opportunities to just to listen and try and absorb information. Obviously, I still like holding a book though. So like if I'm at the beach, you know, there's some books where there's just so much good in it. I, I like to highlight and just think about, write quotes down from, keep them in my, my journal. I might use them again on my whiteboard. Can I give later. you a reading hack really quick, given that you sure. said that? Yeah. Some people just don't like reading. Like they don't like reading. They'd rather listen. But my coach taught me a reading hack for speed reading. And that is, uh, and this is like so true. I, I can't, can't believe it. Your brain can move so much faster than your eyes can. So listening to the audiobook while reading the physical book, you can actually read like while listening at two or even three X. And I have a friend who listens at three and a half X while reading the book. And he gets through the book, obviously like three times faster and therefore three times more books. But his hack is you can follow along. You learn to sight read and you can follow along the book because you're listening to it and your eyes are picking up. And over time, your brain starts to absorb at that speed. The same way my wife like makes fun of me before listening to podcasts at 2X, because I do. And she's like, how do you, and I said, no, I said, it's utility. I'm not listening to enjoy them speaking. I'm listening for the nuggets of wisdom and I want to get through as many books as possible. And, uh, and sometimes I'll slow it down because it's dense information. But that's just a quick little life hack. If you want to learn to read faster, put Audible on 2X and read the book at the same time. Yeah, I haven't tried that yet. I think I did it once by accident. Um, <laughs> but uh, I was like, why is it talking so fast? But yeah, I predominantly, I can't remember the last time I, I read a fiction book. And, and most of the things I read are probably considered, you know, more self-help kind of leadership. Yeah. There's so many good books out there. I think 
One, one that's seldom read that should be read by every leader is, is Leadership and Self-Deception by the Arbinger Institute. That's a, a tremendous book um, to really understand. Leadership under- in Self-Deception? Or leadership and, and Self-Deception. Okay. Um, it's a, a very interesting read. It's a, it's a little... Um, you almost feel like they're judging you a little bit, but you got to get, you got to get through it. I don't know. Looking for the right word there, but it's, uh, it tells a story just about how people have these preconceived notions about other people and they don't realize, you know, what they're going through. And then you you get into this downward spiral. I know one of the, it's, it's geared toward business, but they use a lot of analogies. And when I read this was the first time I've read this book several times was a few years ago. It was probably when my daughter was born. So 11 years ago is when I first read it. And what really resonated with me, they're telling a, you know, it's all about them trying to help this gentleman who's new to the business, understand the culture. And they're talking about, you know, the, the baby gets up crying and he's sitting there pretending to sleep. His wife's pretending to sweet sleep and they're both se- secretly resenting each other, or like cussing at each other, you know, in their mind. Th- this one's lazy. That one's lazy. Won't get up to help the baby. And th- that's kind of how they, they start to present this, these concepts in business as well. Like, what are you doing? You know, or if you're on an airplane and you're sitting cross-legged with your briefcase next to you, not really giving somebody an opportunity to sit there because you're thinking about yourself and you're not thinking about yeah. other people. And it, it, those are very shallow concepts compared to the overarching theme of the book, but just a few kind of things that stick out in my mind. I, th- I think that's a tremendous book. Um, I just reread Extreme Ownership by uh, uh, Jocko Willink. That's the book. That's exactly the book that was coming to mind as you were talking about uh, leadership and self-deception was the concepts in in Jocko's book. Keep going. I love that book. I, I mean, I, I like the military too. We kind of talked about that. So the really yeah. the only books I read that are not in this genre would be like old World War II books, like Band of Brothers and Pacific and things like that. I've read all the books that created those miniseries on HBO. But Have you read any jo- of Mark Devine's books? Mm, I don't know. Yeah. What, can you give me an example? Uh, yeah, yeah, I will. I'm going to look him up. Uh, I don't know why I even was able to pull out his name, but uh, I've uh, he's like uh, something wolf. I'll find it in a second, um, but, okay. but keep going around uh, extreme ownership. I just feel like if you haven't, I definitely want to recommend those books to you because it, it, Mark Devine was where I learned the concept of box breathing. He owns, uh, I think it's San Diego Brewing Company. He was a mm. SEAL team member. Uh, you'll really dig it if you like Jocko's stuff. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely check that out. Doesn't sound like something I've read, but yeah. So I I really like extreme ownership. Just the concept again, changing your mind and lack of accountability in the society. Like people can't step up and admit when they've done something wrong. I don't think there's any shame in that, right? You, it's only failure if you didn't learn something. You're gonna fail, and I think that's a misconception that a lot of people have. And and just by simply taking ownership and stepping up and say, "Yeah, I messed up," or "This was my tactical error," I think gives you a lot of credibility as a leader. And and that's one of the key concepts that I I took from his book that I 100% agree with. I read a lot of books about financial markets and money too. I think that's something that hasn't been taught in school. So when my my son graduated graduation parties, I'm different books um, to some of these kids like uh, Millionaire Next Door was one I, I gave a copy of um, I, I, and then a lot of them are into sports so I did some other things too like uh, Atomic Habits is a tremendous book The Methany Manifesto if you're into coaching Little League it's a tremendous book by the, the I guess he's the general manager now of the Cardinals um, or maybe not the GM just the, the coach but 
just a, a, a tremendous book. Um, and there's, there's so many good things in there, but I, I think my favorite author actually, actually is Malcolm Gladwell. I love those books on taking statistics and kind of turning them upside down. And, and I, I always think that you can manipulate statistics in any way that suits your cause. Um, you know, if, if you're doing, when I used to do reports in college, I would go to the website that had statistics that were supposed to be against my argument and I would use their own statistics against them because it's all relative. Like only 50% of people do this or 20%. Well, you could turn up 20% do that. That's crazy, you know, just depending on what your argument is. So I, I, I think he's very insightful and he writes a lot of good books. I wanted to just circle back really quick to Mark Devine. If you haven't read it, I would highly encourage you to go check out the book Unbeatable Mind, where he goes through a lot of the the fundamental practices he brought out of SEAL training to become an entrepreneur and how he like he actually maps the training. He talks about his his uh, losing his his goggles uh, or they're filling with water uh, 30 minutes into a three hour underwater training mission where actually it wasn't a training mission. It was like a delivery mission where he was with another partner and he had to go for two and a half hours underwater blind. And how the docs breathing allowed him to calm his heart rate, to preserve his oxygen. Because obviously, if you get anxious there and you've got three hours to go and, and you're freaking out, you're going to run out of oxygen. And you're like, they, they were very, very deep underwater. Um, the <laughs> other one that is on my reading list, I haven't read yet, but my um, one of my best friends recommended Staring Down the Wolf. He's the creator of Seal Fit. Um, so he's got a ton of stuff about uh, the way of the seal and, and that kind of thing. But Mark Devine for me is like a, another Jocko Willink and he's a legit... Uh, entrepreneur down in San Diego that uh, I just tremendously admire. I've really enjoyed um, uh, learning through his lesson, his life lessons as well. Well, Nate, I bet you, uh, for those who do go check out your episodes with uh, Benoit, you probably talk a bunch about other books. And uh, I think it'd be fun to just like you, me and Benoit get on and talk shop about what books we, we enjoy or are recommending. We actually might revive. We had a book club here and with Suncast for a while you mentioned running. Is there anything besides exercise that has given you leverage in your uh, business or just personal life? Coaching youth baseball. <laughs> I, w- I, would cons- I wouldn't consider myself a patient person by virtue, but I can't tell you as I've aged how many parents come up to me every year and like, I can't believe how patient you are. Uh, with some things, yeah. I mean, when you realize that you know, you want the kids to have fun and, and learn and play as a team and learn sportsmanship. Like those are the real goals. Like I start every season and the Methaney manifesto goes through a lot of this. It's like, and I actually sent an email um, just the other day, we had our first fall ball game and my, my son's only eight, but I think we lost like 18 to one or something. I said to parents, I said, I don't care if we lose every game, doesn't matter. We have a lot of good individual talent and we're going to make sure that kids are having fun and they come back in the spring and they're playing a new position they never played before. We're going to develop everybody. And if that means, again, we lose every game, that's fine. And uh, candidly, you know, my older son, how they do it, you know, you're on a team basically and you just keep moving up with that same like franchise from the time you're young. So, and they're just big base. I wasn't a big baseball player, but my, my kids are really good. I think they get it from my wife. When my oldest son, you know, the first two years he played down at the eight to 10 level, they didn't win a single game. And then we won the the championship um, when they were 12. And 
that was just such an amazing thing because we, we, it was so hard, you know, the kids, the disappointment when they, where they don't win, it's like, guys, it doesn't matter. It's all coming together. And I also look at my success by how many of them play on the high school team. And there's a lot of kids I've coached that make high school. And that's ultimately, ultimately my goal. If they want to keep playing to give them the tools to not only like, Hey, this game is fun and, and I'm not burnt out on it, but give them the tools to be successful. And I think a lot of the times you're not doing them any favors by pitching the same kid over and over again. You're not doing anyone favor at that point. And that, unfortunately that happens a lot in youth baseball and it's just not a philosophy I subscribe to. Cause at the end of the day, you know, I start whether I'm umpiring cause we umpire a lot of our own games as well. It's like, I don't care who wins this game. As long as everyone can understand that, you're not going to hear anything from me, you know, or my coaches about balls and strikes. Or I mean, we're talking about youth baseball here. Unfortunately, I think a lot of people don't have that same mentality. Yeah, they breed a sense of competitiveness far too early as opposed to the cooperation and the, and the life skills they can learn. I totally agree with that. Well, man, I've really just thoroughly enjoyed uh, this conversation with you in profound ways, both on and off uh, camera and mic here. Uh, I feel like others are going to get a chance to synthesize that through your Monday motivation. So I would encourage everyone to go and follow or connect with Nate. Is there any other sort of direct way or place that you like to be found that you would encourage folks to look for you? I think LinkedIn's the best. Unless if you're really into to cycling, um, you can look me up on on Instagram. <laughs> That's <laughs> on you're mostly going to get. Nice. You're mostly going to get early morning cycling photos. I put my Monday motivation on there too for for my son's friends. Um, That's so funny. I wanna... thought you were going to say Strava. <laughs> yeah, I'm on Strava, but I mean, I I keep that pretty private. Um, I love it. Yeah, I don't ever. I rarely post on Strava uh, publicly, or I guess it sometimes auto publish posts thanks to my Garmin watch, but. Um, <laughs> Since we're not going to end on the mic drop of the bold prediction that you so eloquently already sort of enunciated for us, how can the Suncast audience help either specifically or broadly? You know, I think everyone in the solar industry, it's been like this since I've been in it is sort of, there's all these segments, right? And I think everyone's fighting for different things and it'll certainly help when we can come together with a a common goal, I think we'll get a lot more accomplished and we're not looking at commercial or grid tied or, you know, community solar. And that's honestly, it's, it's nothing's impossible, but it's probably harder said than done, but we're definitely stronger together, you know, better together. Uh, so I, I, I think that's, that's one way we can all help is just to continue to have these great conversations on your show and or Benoist or others and continue to talk about how we can, push this great country toward more renewable energy. That's fantastic. I couldn't agree with you more if, if it weren't against uh, copyright and uh, Google would shut me down. Uh, I'd play the Beatles come together song <laughs> right now, but you guys can all imagine it. Nate Giovanelli is the director of business development for IGS Solar, the distributed generation division of the multi-billion dollar electric and gas business that serves nearly 4 million customers throughout the deregulated United States electrical market and gas market. And it has been a true treasure trove of tidbits, insights, and explanations uh, on this journey with you. Thank you for joining us here on Suncast. Thank you. I had a great time. I really appreciate it. All right, Solar Warrior. Well, thank you for sticking around all the way 
to the end of the show. That's a wrap for the conversation with Nathan. And with it, I want to say thank you once again to Nathan for joining us here. It's a pity and a shame that the flights didn't work out for Nathan and I to interview in person. If you loved this episode and you'd like to hear a follow-up and what it would be like for Nathan and I to interview face-to-face, drop us a like on the post over on LinkedIn. Leave us your thoughts and comments on what we covered, what we didn't cover, what we left still uncovered that we can maybe jump on a live chat, a LinkedIn live, maybe even a clubhouse. Who knows? If you aren't following me over on clubhouse, you should do that along with my friend Tim Montague from the Clean Power Hour. I don't remember Tim's handle, but if you follow me at Suncast over on clubhouse, it should be fairly easy to find Tim. He's on there a whole lot more than I am. I'm going to be tuning in a lot more on clubhouse in the coming weeks as we're going to be talking more about the upcoming hydrogen series that I've been working on quietly slaving away. Uh, I'd love it if you just follow me there on LinkedIn because that's how you'll hear more. Or you could subscribe to our newsletter at mysuncast.com. And and hey, by the way, if you're eager to keep learning, you, my fellow Philomath, can find the resources and highlights from this and every other discussion, along with social media links, book recommendations, and so much more on the blog at mysuncast.com. Just look on the show notes tab if you want to work with me you can click on the work with nico tab pretty obvious just fill out the form there and book some time you and i can chat and again of course join us next week where we'll go deep once again on another clean energy entrepreneur's career path and we'll get tactical with you we've got some cool things coming to keep you informed you're on the front lines and we're helping empower and enable you to keep fighting. Thanks once again to our sponsors for helping make this content free to you. You can learn more about them over at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor, which is also where you can learn how to partner with us to reach thousands of solar warriors and clean tech champions twice a week, just like they are doing right now. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, solar warrior. It's half the battle.